Honored to be here, and uh, I have a joke for you. Thanks to the AA Grapevine. This is sponsored by AA. No, I'm just, well, obviously. Anyway, all right, here we are. So, how many sponsors does it take to change a light bulb? Thank you, Ryan. Let me tell you. The answer is sponsors can't change light, can't change light bulbs. The most they can do is offer guidance based on their experience, strength, and hope. If the light bulb wants to change and is willing to go any lengths, then a higher power can change the light bulb. The answer is just go to God. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Joey. Okay, I am a recovered alcoholic. My name is Michael. Thanks for joining us tonight. In a minute, we're going to start our two-minute meditation. So please take a moment to get situated. Please turn off all devices that make noise that might will distract others. Take this time to get connected to God. Let the craziness of the day drift away and ask God to help you stay focused on the step study tonight. Is everybody ready? If so, let's start the meditation.
Okay, we're going to say the fog light prayer. Um, we don't have it up anywhere, so if you don't know it, just try to follow everybody else's lead. God, let your love shine through. There is a solution from the big book, page 17. The tremendous fact for every one of us is that we have discovered a common solution. We have a way out on which we can absolutely agree and upon which we can join in brotherly and harmonious action. This is the great news this book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism. I've asked Brad to come up to read Appendix 2, Spiritual Experience. We read this because the main purpose of the 12 steps is to have one. So it is kind of important to know what one is. Hello, I'm Brad. I'm an alcoholic. The term spiritual experience and spiritual awakening are used many times in this book, which, upon careful reading, shows that the personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism has manifested itself among us in many different forms. Yet it is true that our first printing gave many readers the impression that these personality changes or religious experiences must be in the nature of sudden and spectacular upheavals. Happily for everyone, this conclusion is erroneous. In the first few chapters, a number of sudden revolutionary changes are described. Though it was not our intention to create such an impression, many alcoholics have nevertheless concluded that in order to recover, they must acquire an immediate and overwhelming God consciousness, followed at once by a vast change in feeling and outlook. Among our rapidly growing membership of thousands of alcoholics, such transformations, though frequent, are by no means the rule. Most of our experiences are what the psychologist William James calls the educational variety because they develop slowly over a period of time. Quite often, friends of the newcomer are aware of the difference long before he is himself. He finally realizes that he has undergone a profound alteration in his reaction to life that such a change could hardly have been brought about by himself alone. What often takes place in a few months could seldom have been accomplished by years of self-discipline. With few expectations, our members find that they have tapped an unsuspected inner resource, which they presently identify with their own conception of a power greater than themselves. Thank you for letting me read. Oh, actually. Oh, never mind. It's not done yet. Sorry. Most of us think this awareness of a power greater than ourselves is the essence of spiritual experience. Our more religious members call it God consciousness. Most emphatically, we wish to say that any alcoholic capable of honestly facing this problem in the light of our experience can recover, provided he does not close his mind to all spiritual concepts. He can only be defeated by an attitude of intolerance or belligerent denial. We find that no one need have difficulty with the spirituality of the program. Willingness, honesty, and open-mindedness are the essentials of recovery, but these are indispensable. There is a principle which is a bar against all information, which is proof against all arguments, and which cannot fail to keep a man in everlasting ignorance. That principle is contempt prior to investigation. Herbert Spencer. Thank you. Thank you, Brad. Okay, so please refrain from disturbing others by talking or constantly getting up and sitting back down. This is a tech-free meeting, so set your phones to airplane, meeting mode, or just turn them off. Um, so now we have Tom coming up for, I believe, his ninth session. Um, the last eight weeks, he has really brought a powerful message to us each and every week regarding recovery, um, and most importantly, finding God and how God can help us in his life. And I know I've learned a lot, so I look forward to hearing what he has to say tonight. Tom?
I got the joke book, okay? <laughs> Thanks to Amy and Dean, they brought us this joke book from the grapevine. Friend, he's, he's got to work on his delivery a little bit, you know? It takes a little time to, you know, polish up on your delivery. The delivery doesn't come easy. It takes a little experience, strength, and hope. Uh, I, I found, a, I was looking through here today, and I really like this one. Uh, because I have personal experience as far as this joke goes. I really want to thank you for sticking with me through all the years of drinking and the first five years of my sobriety, said the AA to her spouse on her fifth anniversary. But I'm curious, if I started drinking again, would you still love me? After pondering the question for about a tenth of a second, her husband said, of course I'd still love you. I'd miss you, but I'd still love you. <laughs> Yes, yeah, well, for those who know my wife, okay, I'll let her tell her story. And uh, we're both going to be telling our stories tomorrow night at the Central Fact Group, if you want to hear her story, you know. And she had, uh, she had two years when I met her, and, and five years, uh, I had five, that was 33 years ago, and... Uh, she got drunk two weeks after I married her. And that's exactly what I said to her. I'm going to miss you. I might have just married you, but I'm going to miss you. Because I won't live with a, with a using alcoholic. I'm not going to do that. You know, there's principles that I have to live by. Uh, my sponsor taught me principles. Uh, things that uh, I can't live below my principles. They, uh, they would, <laughs> so this joking here said, do you know how, uh, there are two alcoholics, do you know how they're, uh, they're, uh, these two alcoholics are on their second date? Uh, there's a, a moving van parked in one of their driveways. <laughs> right, Jeff? Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, yeah. So she's going to have 19 years uh, this month. It's her anniversary month, and she'll have 19 years. And she never had uh, that many years. She never had more than six at one time. I remember uh, she was stood in front of the group and uh, to pick up her 12-year medallion. And she told the group, she said, you know, this isn't the first time I had 12 years. I had two years three times and six years once. Equals 12, right? Yeah. You know, but uh, yeah, if you want to, she's, she's, she, she tells a really good story. You know, I love listening to her. I've been listening to her for 33 years. God bless her. You know, this ninth step, uh, I'm not the kind of uh, guy that uh, is about one of these books or the other. Okay. These books, both these books have helped me. Both these books and a lot of books. You know, I was taught to see where religious people are right, not where they're wrong, to uh, get as much spiritual learning as I can. You know, the more spiritual learning that I can get, the better off I'm going to be. 
And the, uh, I think the, the, the big book I really like where it talks in the ninth step about, in the big book on the ninth step, I'll get into that. Uh, but I, I like in the 12 and 12, where right when it starts on page 83, it lays it out. It says, after we have made a list of people we have harmed, have reflected carefully upon each instance, and have tried to possess ourselves of the right attitude in which to proceed, we will see that the making of direct amends divides those we would approach into several classes. There will be those who ought to be dealt with just as soon as we become reasonably confident that we can maintain our sobriety. There will be those to whom we can make only partial restitution. Less complete disclosures do them or others more harm than good. And there will be cases where action ought to be deferred and still others in which, by the very nature of the situation, we shall never be able to make direct personal contact at all. And so basically, you know, my direct amends have to do, excuse me, Uh, basically, my direct amends were to my family. You know, they're the ones that uh, that really took the brunt of my alcoholism. It seems that we we really, you know, we really the alcoholic really does damage to his family. And there was a lot of uh, uh, alcoholic damage in my family. My father, I, I talked about it a little bit last week when we talked about forgiveness uh, in, in the eighth step. Uh, my father is an adult child of an alcoholic. I have a 31-year-old son that's in, in, uh, lives in the Bronx, and uh, he's in ACOA. And he's, Believe me, I've been sober since 1983. He was born in 1991, but he was still raised by alcoholics. A lot of times we think maybe just because uh, we don't drink that we don't have an effect on, on our families. We still have an effect on our families. I mean, I don't, I don't have alcoholism. I have alcoholism. So just because I think that I quit drinking, that I'm off the hook, and that all of a sudden just now because I don't drink anymore, I'm not still continuing to cause problems, that's not right. Because I am still continuing to cause problems. It's like my, my son Patrick, he, he told his mother that she was making amends to him. And he said, it's okay, Mom. He said, we were all in recovery growing up. Not only me and Mom, but the kids too. We were all in recovery. And, um, you know, 
My father was a rageaholic. He he didn't he didn't really drink. I mean, a six pack could sit in his refrigerator for weeks and weeks, months even. He's one of those kind of guys who's watching the football game and wants a cold one, and that's all he'd have is one, you know. And you know he might uh, take him uh, two months to drink a six pack. But my father had every aspect of an alcoholic personality that you could imagine. And he was a rageaholic. He raged. And he was a, he was a, a carpenter. You know, he had, he had a funny way about him. You know, I, I remember when I was in the third grade, and I was always in trouble with the nuns all the time. And 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 you a kid growing up in in those days, you know, I'm 69 years old, you know, and you probably most people, except maybe some of the older people, know what a cloakroom even is. But you know, in the old days, I mean, I went to uh, St. Agnes. It was built during the Civil War. You know, that's how old that school was. Some of the nuns, I think, been there since the Civil War. <laughs> <laughs> They would always have me in the cloak room all the time. That's where you put your coats, you know. In the old days, you wore cloaks, you know. That's I got the name. So, uh, you know, this is uh, probably 64, 1964 maybe. And, uh, you know, my dad used to get Playboys, you know. So, you know, I was uh, in the third grade, I think, and, and I took a picture out and I had it in my pocket, you know. And I got uh, I got uh, in the, in trouble and put in the cloakroom. So uh, this other kid he gets in trouble. So the nun puts him in the cloakroom. So I figure, you know, he's another bad kid like me. You know, in the cloakroom, I'm going to show him my secret uh, treasure that I have there. You know, and I took it out and I said, "Look at that!" And he took it and ran out of the cloakroom, went out to the nun and gave it to her. And I had to go see Mother Superior. And, uh, you know, Mother Superior called the old man. And the old man came to pick me up. And he laughed about it. He thought it was funny. So not too long after that, I stole the dime off of the nun's desk. And got caught stealing the dime. And back to the cloakroom I went. And back to the Mother Superior I went. And the old man got called. He didn't think that was funny. He was working outside, and, and, you know, if you're a carpenter working in Illinois outside, your hands are all cracked. It's hard to swing a hammer with gloves on. And he took me home, and, and he jerked my trousers down. And, and I thought I was bleeding. There was blood all over, over my tidy whities but they were, it was his hands that cracked open. He beat me so bad for taking a dime. That's the way he, he, his psyche was. And, uh, I mean, I can remember when he knocked me out of the chair because I put my elbows on the table. Punched me in the mouth, knocked me out of the chair because I put my elbows on the table. Had a very strict way about him. 
And so when you, when you grow up that way, you, you take on a lot of those kinds of personalities onto yourself. And I grew up violent. And I grew up with a lot of violence. And I grew up, you know, always in, in some kind of a war. I was at war. I was always at war with the world. And I, I really, you know, I thought this is how you handled things. If you were a man, this is how you handled things. You had to, you had to run the show. You ran the house, you know. They were supposed to do what you told them. And if they didn't, you beat them. That wife of mine, I'm joking about it. If it wasn't for her, she's the one that got me to stop whooping those kids. I used to think that was okay. I'm a sober man. I used to think that was okay. It wasn't okay. There's a lot of things that we get in our heads, you know, that we think are okay. And making a, a direct amends in a lot of ways, it's actually kind of easy. Because you know who you owe money to. You've got to pay this back or pay that back. We know that, uh, that making amends is not about telling somebody you're sorry. You know? I spent 10 years around Alcoholics Anonymous. I never got sober in, in 10 years. I, never, I, I spent time in every one of those years in Alcoholics Anonymous. Do you think the people who loved me believed me when I told them that I was done? And yet we come in here, you know, and we have an ent- like an entitlement. Like we think everybody's supposed to kiss our rear ends now because we quit drinking. Almost like as if they owe us amends for now starting to live right and to do the things that you should have been doing all along. You want a, you want a prize for behaving the way you should have always behaved. And we have expectations, you know. We expect people, you know, to, uh, to treat us a certain way. We don't. We have. We have a way of not looking at things right. No. But Chuck C. in his book, you know, a new pair of glasses is all about. I know. I. I know. I needed a new pair of glasses. Because the glasses I wore, you know, that I put on every day, uh, they made the world look awful dark. You know, that's the only way I saw the world in a very dark way. By now, I'm starting, I'm starting to, to make some progress in this thing. And I have, I have direct amends to make, especially to my family. You know, I'm the oldest in my family. And they would go away and uh, they'd say, take care of the other kids. Well, you know how I took care of the other kids. I beat the hell out of them. 
I broke my hand on my brother's head once. I hit him so hard. I used to knock him down and say, don't get back up again. And he'd get back up and I'd knock him down. And I'd keep knocking him down. You know, until I'd get on top of him and hold him down. You know, and in my drinking, I did a lot of that. I, uh, I, I ran with a lot of people that they were not nice people. You know, that's how, that's how I, I, I worked my way up through the ranks in the organization that I was in. A lot of people talk about making your bones. My boys once said to me once, you know, they said, Dad, you were OG. I didn't even know what that meant. I said, OG, what do you mean? Like old gold, old gold cigarettes or something, you know? What's that mean, OG? No, Dad, you were original gangster. Yeah, well, if you say so, you know. All, what I really was was a snot-nosed punk. That's what I really was. That's the man, the man who really helped me, who put my hand in God's hand. He taught me what I really was. Just a scared kid who pretended to be a tough guy. Like he said, you think you're a tough guy, don't you, Tom? I said, yeah, I can handle myself. And he replied, well, I'll tell you who a tough guy was. Jesus Christ was a tough guy. He took whatever they threw at him, and he loved them anyway. Are you that tough? Are you that tough? Tough enough to do that? Tough enough to love people anyway? I used to go to him with, with people that I wanted to kill. Sober. I wanted to kill them. And by the time I'd leave, I'd be on my knees in tears, praying for him with him both of us on our knees, praying and asking God to forgive me. I had a lot to learn about, about what being a man was. A sober man. A man who, who learns how to love people instead of how I need to punish people if they don't do what I want them to do so that I can control them, so I can manipulate them, so I can put my thumb on them. This program is, is a miracle. It's a miracle in the way that the steps are designed, in the order that they're designed in, and the application that we put into these steps are a miracle. And, and of course, the people that we love, we go to them and we make direct amends to them and they love us. And all they want is to see us do well, is to see us stay sober, is to repair our lives. You know, uh, um, I was always in jail all the time. And uh, and as the years went by, I just seemed to go deeper and deeper into, into legal problems, you know. And, and uh, 
I don't know how I got away with never having a felony. I got I got off a lot of times because there wasn't enough evidence. Anyway, I was sitting in a courtroom in uh, Peoria, Illinois, where I'm from, waiting to get sentenced to the Illinois Penitentiary. And uh, I hadn't, uh, my father, he, he and my brother got out of construction and got into commercial real estate down here in Florida. The old man had hit it big. He had the place on the ocean. He was driving a brand-new Jaguar. I hadn't seen him in a couple of years, and all of a sudden into the courtroom, he walks in with the highest-paid criminal attorney in town. Why no? Because his brothers are connected to the same union I'm connected to. And uh, they walk up, talk to the judge, and then go and sit down, and the judge calls me up and leans over and puts his hand over the microphone. And he says, well, Mr. Matthews, you've got two choices. You can go to the Illinois Penitentiary or you can go to Florida with your father. I said, well, Your Honor, I says, I guess I'm going to Florida. He said, that's right, and don't ever come back here again, because if you do and stand in front of me, you will go to the Illinois Penitentiary for a long time. I said, okay. We went, went right downtown on the river where I lived and picked up my clothes and headed south. Oh, and uh, he was always saving me. He was always saving me. He was always saving my sister. He saved us both from an awful lot. And uh, I think that probably out of everybody in my family, he was the he was the one that I had the hardest time to make direct demands to. Because he was the kind of guy who was always there for you. He'd never turn his back on you. See, he used to see his father sleeping in doorways on Skid Row. Like I told you last week, he hated his old man. He went to, he went to his grave at 91, still hating him. He'd tell you, I'd, we'd, me and my sister, who's sober 39 years, we'd try to talk to him about how how this was a family disease, alcoholism, and how it affected him. And he, he would tell you, oh, no, he'd say, my father's drinking didn't affect me because mother wouldn't allow him home if he was drinking. Because, you know, my old Irish grandma, she wasn't going to divorce him. She'd just say, you're not allowed in here drunk. So he would just, he would just go down and live on Skid Row, lock the barber shop. He was periodic. Go down and live on Skid Row and get drunk for a couple of months, and then when he got sober, he could come back to the house. My mother says, I thought he was a nice man, you know. I, I, I knew him the last seven years he was alive. He never drank. He stayed sober the last seven years. Nobody talked to him. They weren't interested in him. They hated him. Everybody in the family hated him for what he'd done. My mother's from Springfield, Illinois. My father's from Rock Island, Illinois. My father went to Springfield after the Second World War to go to Lincoln Law School, but they closed and he went to work in the state house. That's where he met my mother. My mother says, when they came down from Rock Island, when your father's family came down from Rock Island to the wedding, they all came together, but he had to ride the bus. They didn't even let him in the car with them. 
When he died, my father was at the gravesite, and the town librarian was there. See, he was going out every day. They didn't know where he was going. And the town librarian was there, and he said, I didn't know you knew my father. She said, yeah, I got to know him real well the last seven years. He read almost every book on the shelf. And that's how he was staying sober. But nobody knew that. I don't think they ever even put a, a headstone on his grave. That's what alcoholism does to families, you know. And so we owe a lot of amends, you know, especially to our families. Maybe they owe us some amends too. But we should have already dealt with that. What we were talking about last week in the eighth step. That's why I have to forgive everybody. I have to start to practice the principle of forgiveness. You know, I, I'm not going to sit around and blame my mother or my father or anybody else over my alcoholism. They're sick too. You know, this stuff gets passed on down through families. But I'm not going to get better. I'm not going to be free. That's what we would my sister and I would say to him, don't you understand that if you'd forgive your father, it'd free you? And he would say, he doesn't deserve to be forgiven. God might forgive him, but I never will. Well, I don't want to be like that. I don't want to live that way. You know, and I told my sponsor, I said, you know, he's never even said that he loved me. Never even said he loved me. Never, he never told, I never seen him hug my mother or kiss her. Never married for 63 years. He had no affection. And you know, you ladies know how much it means to have a father that has affection for you. Maybe that's what helped with my sister's alcoholism. Him never having any affection towards her. There's a lot that gets done to us and a lot that we do. We can't keep on in this blame game. We got to let it go. The greatest thing about Alcoholics Anonymous is to know that God loves us. He loves us all unconditionally. He loves them too. We're all created in God's image. I believe in the brotherhood of man under the fatherhood of God. That's what I believe in. We're all brothers and sisters. We're all God's children. Even the sickest ones are still God's children. And uh, I said, well, I can't talk to him. I can't talk to him. How am I supposed to talk to him? He said, well, write him a letter and take it to him. I said, okay. So I wrote this letter, and I, and I, and I poured my heart out about how sorry I was because he'd always rescued me, you know. He was always, he was the rock. And uh, (laughs) 
I went over to his house and and uh, I says, "I got something for you, Dad. I want you. To, I want you to read." And he said, "Okay, come in, sit down." There was nobody there but me and him. It was about four pages, and I had it all, you know, folded up in an envelope. And he sat down, and he used to take he used to take Christmas presents apart like that, like he's going to save the paper. You know what I mean? Real careful, you know. He opens it up real careful, and he takes it out, and he smooths it all out, you know, and he reads it. He folds it all back up, and he puts it back in the envelope, and he stands up, and he hands the envelope back to me, and he said, that's nice, Tom, and he walks out of the room. And I was heartbroken because I didn't get what I expected. I went there with expectations. I guess I thought he was all of a sudden now, I'm 30, after 31 years, going to throw his arms around me, which he'd never done. Hug me and kiss me and tell me he loved me. Oh, no, that's not what I got. I got, that's nice. And I went to my sponsor. And I told him, I, says, I said, I told him what happened. You know, I, I just couldn't believe it. Because I expected, you know, to be treated a certain way for what I had done. That's not what I, I didn't think that that's what I should have gotten in return. And my sponsor told me, he said, well, you know what, Tommy said, you just got a good lesson. Now I'm mad at him, you know. <laughs> Looking at him like, you know. You know, I had a hard, uh, he was a hard-nosed sponsor, a little black Irishman like me from New York City, you know. Once told me, I said, hey, you know, Tommy, I said, you expect an awful, an awful lot out of me. He said, Tommy, all I expect out of you is for you to change your whole effing personality, okay? That's all I expect out of you. I'm still working on that. <laughs> I says, well, what do you mean? He says, you went there thinking that you're going to be forgiven. Big mistake. That's not what these amends are about. They're not about you being forgiven. They're about your willingness to change your life. And you're going to do whatever it takes. Just like when you go to the person and you say, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to make amends to you. It's not about you, them saying, oh, it's okay. You think, you think they believed me after 10 years of being in and out of AA? Now's the time. Oh, okay, we believe you now. Yeah, sure, okay, yeah. You know what, you know what they say? He's full of crap again. You know, he's just full of crap. Like every alcoholic, he's just full of crap. Can't distinguish the truth from the false. Really, that's what delusion's all about. You know, we talking about that denial, and it ain't a river in Egypt. No, it ain't. We live in this, in this mind of ours with our alcoholism that centers up here in our mind, and it's always talking to us all the time. It's always telling us stories. It's always telling me all about you and all about me and all about the world, and it's a liar. 
fed by my own ego. And my ego ain't my amigo. No way. And so, you know, uh, the years go by. And I, I said to, uh, I said, to, let me see where, let me see something. I'm Bob, I think in Bob Anderson's books. I like this. I wanted to make sure I threw this in here. This is in Bob Anderson's book, A Mind Powered Disease. On the ninth step, and Bob's being, he's in, he's in a retreat, you know. He's doing the steps in a retreat. This is from recordings. And he's taking questions. And somebody says to him, uh, should we put ourselves on the amends list? Each year. I don't even know. If so, what was your ninth step like in this respect? And Bob says, I love Bob Anderson. If you ever, if you ever get a chance to listen to him, primetimeisnow.com. That's the primetime group in Beverly Hills. He started it. They have their own website and their own library that's all on MP3s. You can go in there and listen to him. Bob says, here's his response. You know, this is a good question. There's no way that I could put myself on the list and forgive myself and make things all right. It isn't enough for me to forgive myself or to think that I can somehow help myself by doing that. I have to do something different. I have to be the man I should be in the day that I'm in and according to the 12 steps. I have to change. So I have to put other people down on the list and then make amends to them all, not to myself. The only way I can stop hurting is to become the new character. That's the only way. I can't, can't make amends to myself. Self doesn't have the power to forgive self. It just doesn't work that way. I don't belong on that list. God has already forgiven me. If God has forgiven me, who am I not to forgive myself? Just like I said, if God forgives everyone, who am I not to forgive them? Better than God? I mean, if I'm going to follow, if I'm going to follow a God-centered way of life, then I'm going to do what I was, what I was taught to do. To love my God and to love my neighbor as myself. I know it's it's not it's not easy to do, you know, especially in traffic around here. Cuz I'm always ready for Freddy, okay, you know. He cut me off, he did this, he did that. You know, you know one of the ways I got better because see, I've never really changed out of virtue. I'm not a virtuous person. I've really only changed out of pain. It took the pain of my alcoholism for me to get sober and the pain of my own character to learn that I needed to change. And one day I was late and I needed to be somewhere. And I was behind these people and they were just putzing along, you know. And I'm several years sober. Yeah, we think, oh, just because we got some time, well, we're, we're perfect now. Huh? Yeah. And I'm on the horn, I'm blasting that horn, you know, and I'm, 
I'm all, I want to run into the back end of them. I'm coming up on them, you know, and I'm acting like a total maniac. And then when I get the chance to zip around them, I turn and I look, and it's an old lady and an old man about 90 years old. And I think to myself, you're such an asshole. <laughs> Scaring the hell out of those poor people. What in the hell is wrong with you to act like that? This is, you know, where's the amends really at? Where is the amends really at? That's one of the reasons why I love in the, in the big book, you know, when we're in the ninth step in the big book. And we look on page 82, about halfway down, it says, Sometimes we hear an alcoholic say, that the only thing he needs to do is to keep sober. Certainly he must keep sober, for there will be no uh, home if he doesn't. But he is yet a long way from making good to the wife or parents, whom for years he has so shockingly treated. Passing all understanding is the patience mothers and wives have had with alcoholics. Had this not been so, many of us would have had no homes today, would perhaps be dead. The alcoholic is like a tornado roaring his way through the lives of others. Hearts are broken. Sweet relationships are dead. Affections have been uprooted. Selfish and inconsiderate habits have kept the home in turmoil. We feel a man is unthinking when he says that sobriety is enough. He's like the farmer who came up out of his cyclone cellar to find his home ruined. To his wife, he remarked, don't see anything the matter here, Ma. Ain't it grand the wind stopped blowing? Yet there is a long period of reconstruction ahead. We must take the lead. A remorseful mumbling that we are sorry won't fill the bill at all. We ought to sit down with the family and frankly analyze the past as we now see it, being very careful not to criticize them. Their defects may be glaring, but the chances are that our own actions are partly responsible. So we clean house with the family, asking each morning in meditation that our Creator show us the way of patience, tolerance, kindliness, and love. The spiritual life is not a theory. We have to live it. You know, uh, I told him, my sponsor, you know, I, I made these direct amends. And, and I explained, I said, there's all, you know, because I was a street guy. I spent... My whole life, you know, from the time I, I was a kid on the street doing what little street thugs do, doing to a lot of nameless, faceless, unknown people. But I did those things to those people who I don't know. 
all the people that I damaged. Because just about everybody I came in contact through those years, I did something to them. You know, I'm the guy that if you took me where you drank, your bartender would tell you, don't bother coming back if you bring that guy. Because I'm trouble. I'm 5'7". You put whiskey in me and I'm 7'5". And I'm loud and I'm obnoxious and I'm arrogant and I'm looking to bust somebody in the head. I'm looking for one of them heavy ashtrays on the bar, you know, where I can get my hands on it. Those are the guys I grew up with. They taught me to be that way. I come in the bathroom one night. I got a friend. You can call him that. He spent most of his life in Illinois Penitentiary. Blood all over him. He used to stop fights real quick. He'd just take cocktail glass, bust it, and shove it in a guy's face. That's how he'd quit fights right away. He wouldn't have to fight. He'd just tear men's faces open with broken cocktail glasses. Blood all over him. I said, are you okay? That's not my blood. Those kinds of things. I wake up in the morning, the first thing I'd look for is my glasses to see if I could find my glasses so I could see what was going on, put my glasses on. Then I'd look out the window and see if my car was there. So I'm up on the second floor. I live on the second floor on Main Street. And, of course, I black out all the time. I get on my glasses and I look downstairs. I got a 68 Le Mans down there. I see it parked in the backyard, but the, but the back window looks all fogged up. I went down, and I opened up the car, and the back seat was covered in blood. And there was fingerprints through the blood on the window. I don't know what I did. To this day, I can't tell you what I did. But I did something. So there's a lot that I owed And I knew that I owed, that I couldn't make direct. And I said to him, how am I supposed to make amends for these things? Because that's not just I'm an alcoholic and a drug addict. I'm a criminal. How am I supposed to make up for all the people I turned into heroin addicts? Who knows how many died? I, I mean, you know. How am I supposed to make amends for that? I can't make amends for that because I'm thinking that somehow I'm supposed to, this is supposed to be some kind of direct amends. And and he says, uh, who said you can't make amends? And I said, well, what am I supposed to do? He says, you're going to make spiritual amends. And God is going to show you how it's done. And he has. Because I ask him, ask and you you shall receive. You shall receive. All you have to do is ask. And for years, God has shown me the amends that I'll make to this world, to the people in it, to society. And then the biggest thing is that I changed my life. You know, I, I, uh, I become somebody who you can count on. 
I become responsible. I become a good person. I'm no longer a liar, a cheat, and a thief. I don't control and manipulate. I love people. I don't hate anybody. I love everybody. I even like everybody anymore, it seems like. I don't know. I mean, I've gotten where uh, nothing really bothers me. I was at the, uh, at the, my wife and I were at the International Convention in Atlanta, and uh, you couldn't find a cup of coffee downtown, you know, so we went into a hotel, and we were standing uh, uh, with this man. He was standing there. We went over and stood with him, and Got to talking to him, and it turned out he was from someplace in North Florida and sober for 44 years. And he said, we got talking about this, and he says, yeah, no, I don't, I, I live every day, nothing. He said, I remember when I first realized that, that I, I don't have any ill feelings whatsoever. I don't feel bad about anything. I called my sponsor, and I said, man, I, I, I just realized something that, Nothing really bothers me anymore. He said, my sponsor said, welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> this is what, we're, what our purpose is. This, is. this is where we're trying to go. This is serenity. This is what's beyond sobriety. This only comes from the application of the steps in my life, all the steps, all the time. And living this way of life, on a daily basis. And over the years, you know, I, uh, I've done everything I could to become the best person that I can be so that I can make amends for the guy that I once was. An old man who tried to help me and never saw me get it. He used to say, I may not be the man I could be, and I may not be the man I want to be, but thank God I'm not the man I used to be. I'm not done, by no means, because I'm still human. I ain't no guru sitting on a mountain somewhere where life don't touch me. But I got a program and a way of life, you know. And over the years... You know, my father, he got old. My mother got old. I put him close to me so I could take care of him. And uh, my, my, mother, my mother would call me on him. My mother was good in the body, or good in the head, but bad in the body. She was blind and she was crippled. And the old man, he was good in the body, but bad in the head. She'd say, you know, he's driving me crazy. I'd say, he'd call me up. I, he's driving me crazy. I'd say, why is he driving you crazy? Well, uh, you know, he keeps going to the bank every day almost. I said, what for? He wants to see his money. <laughs> see, he grew up dirt poor. You know, my old Irish grandma, she used to say there's two kind of Irish, shanty and lace curtain, and we ain't lace curtain, okay? She took care of everybody during the Depression on $12 a week. She worked till she was 77 years old selling women's clothes. 
I remember once when my mother had to get an operation. She came from Rock Island to Springfield to take care of us. Not only did she take care of us, but she got a job downtown selling clothes and go down and get on the bus every morning and go to work. She's hiding money all over the place, and I'm afraid, and he keeps, he gets mad at him, and he switches the banks. I'm, for, I'm afraid he's going to forget where he put the money. And one day she called me, and so I'd go over there. I found $7,000 underneath his spare tire. He'd forget where he put all this money. He'd, he's going around, he's got $12,000 in his pocket. I go, what are you doing with all that money in your pocket? Somebody's going to knock you over the head. She called me and said, he left hours ago, and I don't know where he is. And I'd say, well, he'll find his way home, or we'll put out a silver alert. <laughs> and he got old, uh, he got sick, and... He'd never been sick in his life. He, he was the kind of guy, that if, you, if you, you had to be almost dying to stay home from school. And then you had to get out of bed and put your clothes on and make your bed. You couldn't lay in the bed. You couldn't lay around in pajamas because, you know, you got to make your mind tell you, you got to tell your mind, you're well. You're not sick. You're well. Okay? Hated doctors. I took him over to the Boca Hospital. He was, he was sick. He had Mercer and... And uh, <laughs> he says, I'm not staying here. I says, yeah, you're staying. Oh, no, I'm not staying. You got the car? I says, yeah, I got the car. Bring the car around back. We're leaving. I says, no, you're staying. No, I'm not staying here. You're going to take me home. I says, I can't take you home. You got to stay here. I'll hitchhike home. I said, you're 91 years old. You're not going to hitchhike home. You got to stay here in the hospital. I go home, and a few hours later, they call me, and they go, uh, we, this is at the Boca Community Hospital. Oh, we just caught your father buck naked going through the lobby, heading for the door. <laughs> so come up to the hospital, go up the fourth floor. As soon as I get off the elevator, there he is sitting there in the nurse's station with a big smile on his face because he got him all drugged up. Hey, how you doing? <laughs> they caught, they, they, he, he, he was, he hated hospitals and doctors. He had a pick that ran to his heart. He pulled out nine times. He fought with all of them. They had to put him on Holodol, a chemical restraint. And even that wasn't enough. They still balled his hands all up so he couldn't grab nobody or, or fight with anybody like, like he had boxer's gloves on. And they called me and they says, there's nothing more we can do for him. We want you to see the hospice, and I'm the oldest. I have to take care of things. We want you to... Uh, to see the hospice lady in the morning. And I said, okay. I went to the hospital and I made arrangements for him to go to hospice. And I said, I'm going to go in and talk to him. And it was dark in his room. And I went over to the bed and they knew the night before he was going to hospice. So they started taking him off the drugs. And he goes, he, he's going like this for me to lean over. And he gets down, I get down in his face and he whispers to me. He says, I'm done. I said, I know you're done. I'm going to put you someplace nobody's going to bother you anymore. He looked me in the eye and he said, I knew I could count on you. 28 years, and I knew my amends had been made to him. Because of the life that I'd been living.
And not only maybe I'd made amends for me, but maybe I'd made amends, some, made him, some kind of amends for his own father, too. That's all he wanted was somebody he could count on. And that's who I became. I became the guy that could be counted on. You can count on me. I'll be there for you. Thanks for letting me share. Okay, let's thank the speaker one more time. And we're going to have Mark come up to do the secretary report. I'm your recovered alcoholic secretary. Keeping with the seventh tradition, which states that every group shall be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions, the baskets are going to go around. While that's going on, I've asked John to come up here and read the recovered statement. We read this notice to explain why many people in this group identify as recovered rather than recovering and what it exactly means to be a recovered alcoholic. Here's John. John Alcoholic. We are not cured of alcoholism, recovered but not cured. That presents a conflict to some alcoholics. If we are cured, we would be, uh, we would be able to drink responsibly. No, we are not cured. The allergic reaction to alcohol will remain with us for our lifetime, but we have been restored to sanity. That was, that was the problem. The main problem of the alcoholic centers in the mind rather in the body. We are now sane where alcohol is concerned. Consequently, we have recovered. Thank you, John. 1940-style big book sponsorship in the forward of the second edition of Alcoholics Anonymous. Of alcoholics who came to A and really tried, 50% of them got sober at once and remained that way. 25% of them sobered up after some relapses, and among the remainder, those who stayed on with AA showed improvement. What we've seen, felt, come to believe, and experience is that God has not changed over time, and neither should the sacred approach back to his loving arms. The statistics above suggest a 75% success rate. Now, please see a show of hands of recovered alcoholics. Okay, does anyone in the room need a sponsor? Please reveal yourself right now. <laughs> okay. If you do, see someone with their hands raised anyway. Um, please join us Monday nights where the big book study, where the big book study meeting, which is right here, where the big book comes alive. Fellowship starts at 630 the study starts at 7.15. We have CDs, mugs, large print big books, little red big books, and big book dictionaries for sale over on the piano. Please see a home group member if you'd like any of that stuff. We meet here, or we meet downstairs usually, every Thursday, same time, same place, 6.30 fellowship, 7.15. Tom will be back for week 10 next week. We ask you to be courteous and ready to begin at the sound of the bell. See you next week.
We have tonight's sessions and all past speaker podcasts online for free at alcoholicsandgod.org. Again, I'd like to invite everyone to our Monday night big book study. And those who wish to thank tonight's speaker, please line up down this center all here. Okay, and we'll be up here again next week. Um, so let's go ahead and close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, Can't get you right.
doodles and sounds and oh when you smiling when you smiling the whole smiles with you yes when you laughing
Chase, here's that song you've been asking me for for a million years. I finally pulled it out the pulled it out the corners of my mind, and um, here you go.
lessons when I go to sleep at night and I dream now. song is. God bless. I love you, Mike Chase. Bye. I think you know this one, don't you?
Thank you very much.